We come now to the principle of supervision. Jesus made disciples accountable. He taught them that to whom much is given, much is required. And to make sure that they were continuing to learn, he kept check on how they were coming along. So there was a continual process of review as the disciples were with their Lord. Those times when they were together, usually apart from the other crowds that were usually on the outside, Jesus had time to deal with some of the issues that had come up on uh, the ministry of these disciples. An example is over in the 10th chapter of Luke where we well, read about the disciples coming back. There were 70 of them. Now actually we have the account of the 12 reporting back to Jesus earlier. They had been sent out, you remember. However, at that time nothing is recorded about any great success they had in their mission. But when we get to the 10th chapter of Luke, there are 70 now that come back at a prearranged time, and they report that they've had a great experience. Why, even demons, they said, were subject to them. And Jesus was pleased at this accomplishment, and the text tells us that he rejoiced in the Spirit. Now, every word of Scripture is important. Don't miss the things that appear almost uh, incidental. For here we are reminded that Jesus let the disciples know he was proud of them. He was happy for their success, just like it's important for a parent to let the children know that you are pleased when they do something right. And you brag on them. You put that little a drawing that they made at Sunday school up on the refrigerator door so people can see it. People that come in, you call attention to what your child has done. You give them a hug. You continually find ways to affirm them. And most of us could appreciate more affirmation. We certainly benefit from it. And here is an example of how Jesus made the disciples aware that he was happy when they had such a notable success. But he seizes the opportunity to teach a great lesson, as is characteristic of Jesus. In this instance, we're told he could see Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, there are many ways that you can interpret that reference. That would take more time than we have here. But one thing is obvious, as this ministry increases, the powers of darkness are going to be shaken by the effectiveness of these disciples' witness. But however you want to look at that reference to the devil having been defeated, at least in this instance, I want you to notice the practical comment that Jesus makes after it's over. For he turns to the disciples and tells them, 
don't rejoice because demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your name is written in the book of heaven. Now, do you see the point? Do you see what he's teaching these disciples? Suppose they are happy only when they have a big success. Everything went their way. They went out, ministered, people were responsive, and so they feel like they have really done a great job. And there is reason to rejoice. But what will you do when you've gone out, you've been faithful, you've tried just as hard as you've ever tried, but no one seems to respond, no one even appreciates what you're doing? Why, it's possible a door could be slammed in your face. What are you going to do then? Are you going to come back and begin to feel sorry for yourself, defeated, even perhaps silently pouting the way people don't recognize how much you've done for them? They don't seem to realize how you really work hard to help them. Let me end you on a secret. If you expect to always be acknowledged for your efforts, and to be given expressions of appreciation. You expect that all the time. You're going to be off balance a good part of your life because it's not going to work out that way. It's usually not the moments of great success that become opportunities for our greatest teaching. In fact, we're told Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. Have you noticed that it's when you're going through some hard times that you really begin to go deeper with the Lord? It's when you're going through the valley and the night begin to close in that you look up and see that the stars are still shining? No, if you always have to be complimented, I'm afraid you're in for some big disappointments. But Jesus is teaching these disciples, although I rejoice with you today and I'm happy for you, you don't have to have the applause of this world. You can rejoice just knowing that you're saved, just knowing that you belong to me, knowing that your name is written in the book of heaven. That's enough to rejoice. That's why I tell my students, I want to hear some shouts on this campus. I want people who drive down the highway hear the shouts of joy ringing from this school and they'll stop the car and they'll wonder what on earth is going on in that place. What kind of a school is that? The people over there seem to be so full of joy. You know, that's what attracts people. They've got enough worries and problems of their own. When they come around you, they don't want to be weighted down with your difficulties as well. If you have three flat tires when you go to church, you don't want to leave with four. It's joy that attracts people to the gospel. And Jesus is teaching these disciples, don't be looking for spectacular success, but that quiet inward witness of the Spirit that you belong to me, that's enough to make you rejoice. And you don't have to have something unusual to happen to give you that joy. You can enjoy your ministry all the time 
whether it meet with great success by the world or not, in your faithfulness, you can live in the joy of the Great Commission. Now, those disciples were slow learners, as I've already said, but he was finding ways as they talked with them, reacting to their experiences, to teach them greater truth. Take the time that he'd been up on the mountain with three of the disciples when the glory of God came down, Jesus was transfigured, and Peter, James, and John wanted to build three tabernacles to commemorate this occasion. But when they came down the mountain, the other disciples had been down there when a man brought his child who was afflicted, he said, with, with demons, and asked the disciples to cast out the evil spirit. Now, Jesus had been doing this, and so he expected the disciples to be able to do the same, and they apparently tried, but were unsuccessful. And so when Jesus appeared, the Father came running to Jesus and asked him to help him. He says, your disciples have failed. There are no, no support. And of course, Jesus did deal with the problem and he rebuked the unclean spirit and the boy was restored. But he used the occasion to teach the disciples for they were wondering why they had been so ineffective. And Jesus reminded them that this is a problem that requires more prayer. This is a battle that you don't win just by going through the routine of some service that you've seen performed before. There's a struggle with powers and principalities in prayer. And that is a ministry that you have to learn. I'm sure the disciples got the lesson because as everything else in the Gospels, it's there because the disciples told the story or else wrote it down themselves. So what is written is not just the account of the life of Christ. We have here the experiences that change the lives of those disciples. Take another. Here the disciples were out ministering and they ran across some people that were casting out demons uh, that were not a part of the apostolic company. And they rebuked them. The idea that they would be doing this ministry when they're not a part of the denomination to which they were a part. But it was a good opportunity for Jesus to remind them, don't forbid them. If they're not against us, they're for us. The work is too big for us to care who gets any credit for it anyway. Especially be sensitive to the children. Let's not be an offense to these little ones. And they don't understand all of the ramifications that seem to be of a concern to you and your connections and your loyalties to groups and programs. Just rejoice that the gospel is going forth. The disciples needed to see that. On another occasion, uh, 
they were in ministry with Christ and they ran across some Samaritans. And these Samaritans, as you know, were considered half-breeds. They were not uh, loved by the Jewish people. And in their uh, misunderstanding and in their uh, lack of, of compassion, the disciples wanted to call down fire on the head of these uncooperative Samaritans that had been a, a, a menace to them. And Jesus had to remind them that that's not their business. He hasn't come to condemn the world but to save it. And the way to deal with this problem of people who wanted to create controversy, Jesus solved very quickly by just leaving and going to another part of the country. Constantly teaching the disciples by the experiences that they were having on their own or having with Him, how they too can overcome. Another instant is when this rich young ruler came running to Jesus, asking what he could do to have eternal life. Well, he came to the right person. Although his question betrays the problem. He was thinking of something that he could do, some work that he could perform that would earn the favor of God and deserve eternal life. Well, Jesus had compassion on this young man, a man that seemed to already have it made, not just his youth, he was wealthy, and a leader in uh, the Jewish community. He had what the world could give in recognition. Yes, he got the right question in needing life, but he made the wrong response when Jesus told him he had to sell what was standing in the way between him and God. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And appeared this rich young ruler loved his money more than he really loved God. That flabbergasted the disciples because in their mind, this young ruler had everything that you could expect as a religious person. And if you'll read the sequence, he spent more time explaining to those disciples why he acted as he did than he actually did talking with the rich young ruler. And this is a pattern throughout his ministry. Jesus takes the examples that come out of his ministry as the object lesson for further teaching. Sometimes they can't really comprehend the depth of his message. Like when he talked about the four different kinds of soils, referring to different kinds of people that hear the word. And the disciples were not clear. And as you read the description, Jesus spent far more time after it was over explaining to the disciples the meaning of those four different kinds of people 
than just preaching that message to the multitudes. But it was on the job training all the time. Jesus is continually teaching, enlarging upon what they do understand, but showing them that it's only a door to knowing more. And particularly, he moves into the deeper dimensions of sanctification. It comes out especially in the last year and particularly the last weeks of his ministry. Have you noticed that more attention is given to the disciples in the third year of his training than in the first year? And especially in the last weeks. Because the time now is running out. And there are some things that those disciples really need to comprehend as they're going to be on their own when Jesus returns to the Father. And that's when, as we will see later, we have the greatest teaching on the Holy Spirit. But the meaning of sanctification, making a people holy, is really the, the theme of this supervision that Jesus has with the disciples is they're growing in grace and knowledge, leading them to see the deeper ways that they can receive the grace of God. And I have found that this is true of, of my own attempts to lead others who come with questions or who I meet with uh, in little groups to pray with. Their questions basically relate to the meaning of the Spirit conforming us to the image of Christ, which is the meaning of sanctification. Every Christian is called a saint. The letters of Paul are addressed to the saints at Colossae, to the saints at, at Corinth. These are, these are Christians acknowledging that they are whole, they're holy. The word saint and holy is the same word. Sanctification and holiness come from the same root. But it's talking about being fashioned into the character of God. He is holy. And so he expects his people to be like him. It's been said, show me your people and I will show you your gods. And it's true. If we worship the God of, of uh, sexual indulgence as as many of the Ephesians who worship the goddess Diana, we would expect the people to live sexually perverse lives. That's the kind of God they worshiped. Or if we worshiped a God uh, like Jupiter, who many of the Romans worship, we would expect the people to live very brutal, barbaric, fierce lives. That's the kind of God many of them worship. You never rise above your God. But the God that we worship, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is holy. He's of purer eyes than even to look upon evil. And he says, because this is his character, because I am holy, he says, you be holy. And this is the area where we're going to be growing by God's grace as we learn more truth and the spirit of truth convicts us of how much more we have yet to experience of the grace 
of God. Often it comes in those areas where we're thinking of attitudes and reactions and reactions. We're talking about character traits, a stubborn spirit, an unforgiving attitude toward those who have wronged us, which develops an inward bitterness, a deep resentment. It's not easily removed unless we confront the issue head on. Or it may find expression in pride, uh, thinking ourselves more than we ought to be, failing to realize all that we are is just by God's grace anyway. But these are attitudes that are unbecoming the lifestyle of Christ, and we've got to be honest with ourselves and confront them. Don't gloss over them, as is so much the case today in the contemporary culture of mediocrity in the church. This old carnal spirit of enmity and bitterness and self-centeredness has to be dealt with. It is sin. And when we are conscious of anything that we know is unlike the character of our Lord, we've got to deal with it. We can't sweep it under the rug. We can't transfer it to someone else. We can't excuse it on the basis of our upbringing or our lack of training or because we've been offended. No. When the Spirit of God brings it to our conscious, we've got to come to grips with sin and recognize like any sin, when we confess it, renounce it, and turn from it, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why I like to talk with the boys about some of those whose lives have been far more effective than mine and have inspired me to seek more of God's grace one of the little books that we will read together in the course of our time together is R.A. Torrey's little story, Why God Used Dale Moody. And he tells in there characteristics of the life of Moody that were so impressive, like his, his witnessing, his zeal for evangelism, his lack of love for money, his uh, compassion for people. But he concludes with the story of Moody being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he tells about these two free Methodist ladies up in Chicago where Moody was ministering at the time, having a Sunday school which grew to be the largest Sunday school in the city. He was still a businessman. In fact, Moody was never ordained actively into the ministry. But his Ministry was attracting the attention now of people from all over the city. But there were two ladies that would come to his services, and as they would leave, they would mention that they were praying for him. And at first, this irritated Moody. He said, well, why don't you pray for the, the, the sinners? Why do you feel like I need prayer? They didn't argue with him. They just reminded him, I'm praying for you. 
And they continued to lift up Moody in prayer, and I'm sure others were praying for him. But the Spirit of God began to convict Moody of what they were talking about, being filled with the Spirit. And he tells one day as he was walking down Wall Street in New York, uh, shortly before he was to leave for a crusade in England, the Spirit of God fell upon him and began to fill him with the sweetness and love and power that he had not known before. In fact, the presence of the Spirit was so great, he asked God to stay his hand. He said, I can hold no more. It's a beautiful little story because Dwight L. Moody in his generation was probably recognized as the most effective evangelist in the land. It precipitates a discussion on what does he mean here? How does that relate to us? We'll talk about others that had similar experiences like Charles G. Finney, probably the greatest revivalist in American history. A lawyer who tells after he had come to that experience with Christ that changed his direction not long after out there in the woods he had that renewing and infilling of the Holy Spirit in power. We'll think of the sermons of John Wesley, how he speaks about perfect love and entire sanctification. For those coming from a Wesleyan tradition, this is very consistent because a Wesleyan defines sin as something that is conscious. May be wrong, but if you're not aware of it, you don't accept that as deliberate sin. We then think of Jonathan Edwards, who's talking about the victorious life of the presence of God. But coming from that background, sin is something that is real, whether you are aware of it or not. And so in that sense, you can never be consciously free of condemnation because unconsciously you're still committing things that are short of the glory of God. You could buy a candy bar and commit sin. You didn't mean it, but if you had been more considerate more considerate, you could have given that money to foreign missions instead of just satisfying your own indulgence. They have a different understanding of sin. But when you understand the differences, then when we read Wesley and we read Edwards, we can see how they're coming to the same place of that deeper awareness of the presence of God. Whether it's called the fullness of the Spirit or Christian perfection, our complete consecration, or the rest of faith, or the victorious life, or something else. What matters is that sense of the reality of the living Christ. We'll read a little book by Brother Lawrence called The Practice of the Presence of God, which is still in print after hundreds of years. This lay brother in the monastery, whose job it was to cook the meals for the other pre the brothers, and he tells how after about 16 years as a member of this Christian community, he found himself barren as he looked out during the winter months and saw a tree that had no life. 
And he realized that that was true of him. He was barren. And he began to yearn for something that was more real. And he came to a sense of the presence of Christ that was so genuine that he said he could feel God's presence in the clanking of the pans in the kitchen as much as when he was on his knees taking the blessed sacrament at the altar. Beautiful description of Christian perfection. Or you could put that alongside Pascal, Boise Pascal, the greatest intellectual of the Western world. And I will have the boys read some excerpts from his writings. I've even put it together in a little book. He's the father of modern science. The inventor of so many things, I can't even recall them all. There are so many. One of which is calculus. But everything that he did in achieving notability as a great scientist, he realized was as nothing. It didn't satisfy the deeper yearning of his soul. And one day as he was reading from the 17th chapter of John, it seemed the Spirit of God made those words come alive and he saw God in fire. He wrote that experience down on a piece of paper and sewed it inside the lining of his coat. No one knew about it until after his death, some six or seven years later, they discovered it when they were preparing him for burial as he described that experience when God appeared to him, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, fire, cleansing his heart. And after that, the things that before had been so important lost their attraction completely. He wanted only to study the Bible, sometimes just out of a need to quell some of the pain of his migraine headaches that were terrible. He would work some new quirum that had never been discovered before in geometry and do that just as a diversion. But his burden now was to know more of Christ. Gave away all his possessions. Even his house he turned over to someone who needed a place to stay. You can read the story. And I have the boys go through some parts of his story and the Ponce's. You know, we can see together how men who have gone before have struggled with some of the same issues that we're struggling with. That sense of defeat, that, that sense of being barren, that, that powerless to overcome the, the temptations that are coming at us from every direction. And we recognize the need for something deeper in the dimension of sanctification. But God, God is able to go beyond what we can even ask or think. Let us not limit the dimensions of God's love, nor what 
Christ accomplished on that cross when He poured out His blood for us. Let us not for a moment think that the atoning blood of Christ is inadequate for our problems that we confront in sin. We've got to deal with these things. That's something that comes very naturally when you get close to each other and begin to talk about some of the deeper needs of your life and share together. And we experience something that can only be called revival, which means to return to our source of strength. The word in the Old Testament used 250 times is seldom translated revival. More likely it's translated save or preserve or restore. But the basic idea is to return to that purpose for which you were made. Comes from a word originally meaning to breathe. And you get the idea when the Spirit of God breathes upon the dry bones that Ezekiel described and the breath of God restores them and they begin to move and soon they're alive again. The same word Jesus uses that's comparable to the Old Testament term when He describes the prodigal who has come to Himself and He starts home and the father explaining to the other son what has happened puts it like this, this boy that was dead, that was lost, is alive again. That is revival. Returning to what God made us for, to know Him in His fullness, to love Him in His infinite direction and majesty and glory, and to rejoice in who He is. Oh, this is what we do in these times when we can share together. We don't have to make it a sermon. Often it's just a comment. Often it's just an explanation of what we are thinking or how we understand it. But seeking to bring these learners to know something of that same reality that by God's grace you have experienced yourself. Not that you're any better. It's all by the grace of God and hopefully they can attain far more than you have ever known. That's why you don't speak as the authoritarian who has all the answers. The Word alone is authority. So keep the focus on Jesus, not yourself. I don't agree with this idea where discipleship is one man at the top of a pyramid, just giving commands that filter down at different levels. No, I reverse it. In my view of discipleship, the man at the top has renounced his own rights, and he is a servant. And his own life bespeaks such a servant spirit that those that come after him can only yearn to know more of that same likeness, which we can only see perfectly in Christ. Supervision. Coveting for those that are following you, everything that you have learned, but more than that, more than you have learned, they too can learn and experience depths of the riches of God that you are still seeking. That's the beautiful thing about this lifestyle. 
If you've been a good teacher, those that have been learning from you should know a little bit more than you've been able to teach because you've saved them for some of the pitfalls that you've fallen into. And that's the joy to see them surpass you and go beyond. And I've seen that again and again. I think of dear Ijith Fernando. He'll be a speaker again at Cape Down in the Lausanne Congress next year, just like he was at the other one and has been at the Amsterdam conferences. But I can still remember when he was just a student over 30 years ago at Asbury, 35 years ago. He was having difficulty getting up in the morning at 6 o'clock, and so I said, well, that's simple. Just get you a good alarm clock, put it on the other side of the room, and set it for 5.30. You'll be up and ready to go by 6. And you know, though that was some 35 years ago, we still keep in touch, and almost every week, if not one week, it'll be two weeks, I get an email from Ijith. I had to tell him, I can't keep up with you, Ijith. I don't know where you get the time for all these emails. He says, I understand, Dr. Coleman, but I want you to know what I'm doing and what I'm going through so you can pray for me. And I have to say now, I sit at his feet. Last time he passed through Boston, he came over Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock to meet with my group, just like he used to. His last book, The Jesus-Driven Life, I use now as a collateral reading to those boys to help them see how this man has learned that Jesus alone is the inspiration. He is the one that we're to follow. And the degree that we can get attention from ourselves and on to Christ, to that degree we are succeeding in fulfilling the command to make disciples of the nations. That's great supervision. Jesus made his disciples accountable. And we should seek those that are following us to learn that same principle. Even as we look ahead to what yet is to happen. Living in anticipation of the day when finally the Great Commission is fulfilled. And that will bring us into the next principle.